All right, let me invite you to open up your Bibles to Ecclesiastes chapter 6. Ecclesiastes 6 is where we'll be this morning. If you are a guest with us here today, we're so glad to have you. If you're watching online for the first time, we've been going through the book of Ecclesiastes and we are six chapters in almost right about halfway. And so we have five to six more weeks in the book of Ecclesiastes. As you're turning there, a couple of things I want you to be aware of. One in particular, we will start our in-person small group meetings with our middle school students today. Uh, you can find more online. It'll be very safe, but it's time to, uh, we need to combat all of this isolation. It's time to start getting people together. So uh, we'll, we'll uh, start that today and we look forward to more and more of that kind of thing. All right, Ecclesiastes chapter 6. If you found that, won't you stand? We'll read together God's Word. <clears throat> Ecclesiastes 6, I'll start in verse 1 and read down to verse 9. Grass with us and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Let's begin verse 1. <clears throat> there is an evil that I have seen under the sun, and it lies heavy on mankind. A man to whom God gives wealth, possessions, and honor so that he lacks nothing of all that he desires, and yet God does not give him power to enjoy them, but a stranger enjoys them. This is vanity. It is a grievous evil. If a man fathers a hundred children and he lives many years, so that the days of his years are many, but his soul, is not satisfied with life's good things, and he has no burial, I say a stillborn child is better off than he. For it comes in vanity, and it goes in darkness, and in darkness its name is covered. Moreover, it has not seen the sun or known anything, yet it finds rest rather than he. Even though he should live a thousand years twice over and yet enjoy no good, do not all go to one place? All the toil of a man is for his mouth, and yet his soul, his, his appetite is not satisfied. What advantage? What advantage has the wise man over the fool? What does the poor man have who knows how to conduct himself before the living? Better is the sight of the eyes than the wandering of the soul or the appetite. This is vanity, and it's striving after the wind. Join me as we pray. Father, I pray that by some miracle you would awaken those dead in sin to believe. Pray that by your Spirit you would do soul work today. For every man and woman that has lived in fear and hurt and pain and bitterness and depression and anxiety and worry, that's eaten at our souls. And so we need your help. 
And we ask you to speak to your people through your word. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. We are halfway through the book of Ecclesiastes. I said that earlier. About halfway through Ecclesiastes, and it's as if the preacher, that's what Solomon calls himself, it's as if the preacher has been reading our mail. How does he know? How does he know how empty we sometimes feel inside? How did the preacher find out about that dark, hollow place inside of your soul? How does he know that although you have every tangible reason to be happy, you still seem to come up short? How does he know you're not completely content? How does he know that you keep thinking there's got to be more to life than this? Here in chapter 6, the preacher has brought us down to earth. You see it in verse 1, he says, this is life under the sun. Remember who wrote this? It's Solomon. He is an old man now, and he looks at all of his riches, and he looks at all of his women, and he looks at all of his power. He looks at all the standing he has as the wealthiest man in the world, and he says, is this it? Now, remember, Ecclesiastes does not like the gospel. Ecclesiastes is here to show us our need for the gospel. And chapter 6 bores deeper, looks further into our souls than any chapter up to this point. The preacher silences all the noise. He takes away the clatter and the busyness of life. And he says to you, it's your soul. You've catered to every other part of who you are except your soul. And part of what the preacher is saying in this passage is, if you don't get the soul work right, if you don't get it right, then none of the successes and none of the enjoyments in your life that you have right now will amount to anything. So what I want to do for the next few moments, let's, let's take this passage as, as we get ready to take the Lord's Supper. Let's take this passage and examine our discontented souls because a discontented soul will never be satisfied. If your soul is discontented, it'll never be satisfied. Let's take a look at it. In verse 1, you'll find this discontented soul. Here's the first thing I want you to see. Is that is that a discontented, a discontented soul won't deal with the real problem. A discontented soul won't deal with the real problem. Notice a few things in verse 1. Let me read verse 1. Let's read it slowly and look at just a couple of things. Let me show it to you. Verse 1. The preacher starts out, There is an evil that I have seen under the sun, here on earth, in everyday life, 
Solomon looks around and he says, okay, this is what I've seen in everyday life. What has he seen? Something lies heavy on mankind. Lies heavy. It covers all of mankind. Not just that one person is bearing the load, but every, pe every person has it. All of it is on all people. What is it he's talking about? No one is exempt. No one escapes. Now in verse 2, the, the preacher will further pinpoint what it is exactly he's talking about. But for right now, he brings up a, uni a universal problem that is common to every person that has ever been born since Cain and Abel. And that is that we are sinners. That you are a sinner. That that sin lays heavy on us. It's important for us to understand we don't just commit sins, we are actually sinners. And that sin lays heavy on us. It is in the air that we breathe, it's in the water we drink, it's in the food that we eat, it's in the people that we love, it's in the actions that we take. All of it, every one, all of it, it's all tainted with sin. It's good for you to remember good for me to remember that you're no different than anyone else. Sin has weighed heavy into your life. Sin has burdened your own soul. It has blurred your vision. It has affected your decision. And it's, and it's, at, the, it's at the very root of your discontentment. Remember, remember who wrote this? Now Solomon wrote this. Think about, uh, we tried to categorize Solomon's life and the things that he wrote. He's known for writing the Song of Songs or the Song of Solomon, the Proverbs, and Ecclesiastes. So you typically think of Solomon writing the Song of Solomon as a young man. Go and read it sometime. Only a young man talks like that. We think he wrote the book of Proverbs uh, when he was in middle age, giving out this is how the world works. And then he wrote the book of Ecclesiastes as an older man looking back on his life. And in this passage, you see him looking back on his life and he understands some of the profound mess he made of his life. And he sees the root of it. And sin. The root of all the societal and relational and vocational issues that you and I have, it's sin. It's the fact that you are a sinful person dealing with sinful people in a sinful world. I think this is, this is what's lacking in a lot of so-called um, conservative, Bible-believing preaching is we don't ever actually get to the fact that we're talking about sin as the problem. That the root of our issues from racism to narcissism to boredom is the insidious nature of sin that's gone into the very DNA of who we are. And until you come to grips with your own sin, until you understand the depth of your own sin, you can never actually appreciate the beauty, the unbelievable goodness of the gospel. The gospel. When I say the gospel, what I mean is not just good work. I mean that God is holy He's created man in his image. As an image bearer of God, you are due respect, but the image of God in me and in you is disfigured because of sin. 
That sin is such that it's not just made us sick. The Bible says that we are dead in sin, that we are separated from God. We're not just a long way from God, completely separated. And God in His love, not because we've done anything, not because He looked down the road and understood that you would choose to love Him, because of sheer grace and nothing else, He has sent Jesus to die for the sins we commit. That's why the cross. There at the cross, Jesus died in the place of sinners, all sinners that will ever be saved. God raised him from the dead. And the call is to believe that, to, to come to Jesus. You right now in your pew or watching at home, you can actually ask God to save you based on the merits of what Jesus has done. And, and if you are already a Christian you know what you can do? This is what John Owen, the great Puritan, would say, that we are to be killing sin or sin's going to be killing you. You should be fighting sin. So let's you and I deal with the, the real problem of your discontentment. A question you might ask is, in fact, Jesus Lord. Have you surrendered your life to the Lordship of Jesus? I don't mean did you pray a prayer, a sinner's prayer, or were you baptized? Is there a certificate somewhere that says you're a Christian? I'm asking you, is there evidence in your life that Jesus Christ is in fact the one who has saved and changed you and you are bearing fruit because of that? If not, then you are not a Christian. Here's another question. Maybe you are a Christian, but you really are struggling with something. There's some unconfessed sin. There's some, maybe even some secret sin. There's some besetting sin that today you need to deal with. It's good for you to deal with it. Today we're going to have the Lord's Supper. We need to take care of that. Are you struggling with idolatry in any way? You, when I say that, it looks like you actually are a really solid believer, but you have allowed something else to take the dominance in your life. Maybe it's a child. You did it out of love. You love your children or a, or a spouse or a job. Or how, how are you with complaining? Complaining. I think that's an important question, complaining, because when we complain, what we're actually doing is saying we don't think God is running things right. You can take most of the Old Testament and condense it down into really one sentence, and that is God does not like complainers. Go read Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers. Or, or maybe you've been hurt so bad you're really having a hard time trusting God. Will you trust Him even when it hurts? If you're a discontented person, a discontented soul needs to deal with the real problem, and the root of that problem is actual sin. That's, that's, that's verse 1. Let's look harder at verse 1 and verse 2. Here's a second point I'd like to give you, number 2. A discontented soul... doesn't recognize the real solution. Not only will you not deal with the real problem, a discontented soul doesn't recognize the real solution, that the solution is, in fact, Jesus Christ. Now, now when we go to verse 2, I'm going to read verse 2. You won't see the answer when I read verse 2 at first, but hidden in what the preacher is describing as the problem is, in fact, the real solution. 
And I'll just be honest with you, it's been something that's been tremendously helpful to me personally in the last year. I'm going to read verse 2, and um, there are two things I want you to see in verse 2. I want you to see the good provision, two things, good provision, that's, that's easy and fun to read about, and then hard providence is difficult but necessary to read about. Let's look at good provision right there in verse 2. Notice how he says it. A man to whom God gives. God is giving. He's setting up a scenario, and here's the scenario. Here's a man that God has given. God has given him wealth. God has given him possessions. God has given him honor. In fact, keep reading there. God has given him everything he wants. Now, pause right there. When you read this far in the verse, there is a real God-centeredness and awareness of God that most of us here, we don't have. We, we just assume provision. We have lived with provision so long, we just assume that we're going to have it. Probably assume we should have it. Let the ice storm come through and the electric lines fall and your lights go out. And first, we knew it was coming, and then we're checking the timer. How long is it going to be till they get the lights back on? What if, what if God stripped you bare of everything, every article of clothing, every particle of food, every stick of furniture, every friend, every relative, every convenience that you actually have not thanked him for? What if he took all of that away? You see, dissatisfaction, discontentment is the enemy of, of being thankful. When you're discontent, that's the enemy of being thankful. What you're saying is, not only am I not thankful, but I think this is being done wrong. Now, the flip side is also true. That gratitude, thankfulness, is the killer of discontentment. When I say thankfulness, what I mean is gratitude to God. To live in a constant awareness of the fact that, that this is God's, this is God's world, that, that in His kindness He has provided for you. And I don't mean just the common grace that the, that the rain falls on the just and the unjust and the sun shines on everybody's sinners and unsinners alike. I'm talking about the fact that, that for His children He has given you special kindness and provision. And, and even if it's just for a little while and because God's plan is perfect, and we believe that because God's plan is perfect and this world is His. Take another step. And because He is the potter and I am the clay, that which is being molded won't say to the molder, why are you doing it like this? I deserve better than this. I, I wonder, I wonder how much of your life and attitude and lack of soul contentment would change if you started recognizing God's immediate provision in your life. I mean, honestly, this whole verse, verse the, whole, the front part of this verse, it's packed with God's good provision. 
but then something happens. It takes a downturn in, in verse 2, and it turns into the other thing I wanted to talk about. Talked about the good provision. Let's talk about the hard providence. Go, go back to verse 2 and let's read it coming forward and see if you see the, the hard providence there in verse 2. So things are going good on the front end of verse 2. He's giving us a scenario. There's a man to whom God has given wealth and possessions and honor so that he lacks nothing of all that he desires. It is going really well. And yet, it's God. God does this. God. God does not give him the power to enjoy them. He's worked hard. He's got all these good things, this wonderful life. And now God takes it, gives it to a stranger. And the preacher looks at it and he says, this is it's vanity. It's a grievous evil. In fact, that translation is, this is a sickening thing. It gives me a sickening feeling. But you know what it does here? It brings us back to providence and to worldview. I mean, this book here, Ecclesiastes, is very similar in some ways to the book of Job. You remember the book of Job, you read uh, chapter 1 of Job, and something happens in chapter 1 that the, the Sabians, they come down and fall upon his children and kill them. The fire from God burns up all of his sheep. The wind from God knocks down the building where the rest of his sons and daughters are, and they all die. And it devastates him. Don't think that Job was impassive and he just stood there with a stiff upper lip. He didn't. He laid down in the dirt and wept. It crushed him. Go read it sometime. In, in Job chapter 1, remember what, he, remember what he said? This is amazing to me. Job chapter 1, verse 21 and 22. Job said, Naked I came from my mother's womb. Naked I shall return. The Lord gives. The Lord's taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. The narrator, verse 22, the narrator says in all of this, Job did not sin and he did not charge God with wrong. Or you get to the end of that chapter, chapter 1, and his wife, Job's wife, <clears throat> she was a real encourager, Job's wife, here's what she said, you need to curse God and die. And Job says to her, Shall we receive good things from God? It gives us these good things. Shall we receive good things from God and not receive the, the hard and bad and evil things? Now listen. Stepping into some difficult territory here. If you are hurt, bitter, confused, you might even actually be angry with God because of the terrible things that have happened. I think it's time now for you to ask God to help you. You might even need to ask God to forgive you. 
You might want to ask God to give you eyes to see and, and, and a heart to trust in His constant and good provision and give you the ability to walk through the hard providence that you can't see clearly. And let's say that you can't see clearly. Let's say that you still have this why, the question why. I'm going to give you what, what Spurgeon would say. Every Christian message must have the cross in it, and Spurgeon would find the text and go right to the cross, and on the way there he would speak of repentance and forgiveness and, and God's provision. But one of the things that he would mention is not just forgiveness and grace and mercy. A lot of you Christians, you've already got that. Spurgeon would say, go to the wounds. Look at the wounds. Remember Isaiah? Look at the wounds. And there the wounds of Jesus find healing. There's the solution. There's your satisfaction. It's in Jesus. But a discontented soul doesn't see the real problem, which is sin, a discontented soul doesn't see the real solution, which is Jesus. I'll give you a third thing to consider. Number three, a, discon a discontented soul will never be satisfied without Jesus. If you're sitting here today, you're watching online, and you accidentally you've, you're hearing this, you should know if you're wandering away, you're never going to find what you're looking for until you come to Jesus. I want you to see what the preacher does down here, right there in this text. He takes verse 3 all the way down to verse 7, and notice what he's going to do. Verse 3, he takes all of the things that traditionally would be seen as God's blessing on your life, the, the things that traditionally are markers of a happy life, and he just knocks them down one by one. Look what it says in verse 3. <clears throat> he gives us this scenario. If a man fathers a hundred children which does not sound like a blessing at all to me anyway. But, but you see what he's doing is this is hyperbole. So you think you're having seven or eight children that God has, has, has filled your quiver. Well, here, let me just take it another step. If you have, even if you have a hundred children, or he says, if you live a long life in verse three, do you see that? Or he expands it in verse six. He says a thousand times two. If you live a thousand years over twice, so having lots of children, living a long life, being buried well, having a good marriage, all of, these sort of, all of these sort of markers of traditional happiness. And the preacher says, if you've got every one of those and yet you are still discontent in your soul, the preacher said, look what he does in verse 3 and 4 and 5. I hate to even bring it up, but he says, okay, you have all of these great things and yet you still are not satisfied here Look at verse 3. A miscarriage. Some of you understand the, the hurt, the pain, the, the broken dreams, the quiet, um, the quiet brokenness that comes with a miscarriage. And so you bring all that here, and here's what the preacher's saying. All of that right there is, is better than you are. If all you have is your work and good family to show, and yet you're discontented in your soul, you're missing it. 
or, or you come down to verse 7, maybe you find great satisfaction in your work. Maybe you have, find great satisfaction in the things that you can accomplish and you toil and, and you're paid for that. Look what verse 7 says. All the toil of a man is for his mouth. You eat, you get money, you take money, you buy food, you eat the food, go to bed, sleep it off, wake up hungry, eat. Go to work, make money, buy more food, eat. And the preacher said, you get in to that cycle of you just working to feed your mouth and something lacks, verse 7, your appetite. You see that word appetite? Uh, you circle it. It is, the, it is the Hebrew word nefesh. It means soul. It's your soul. It's good that you work hard. It's good that God's provided. It's good that you have food to eat. But you miss the whole point of life. It's your soul. Verse 8, he goes on. Verse 7 and 8, he talks about the common lot of all people, that we're all going to die, that the wise man's going to die, that the foolish man's going to die, that the rich man's going to die, that the poor man's going to die, that you, you end up, every one of us, with the same end, and it's your soul that matters. And then in verse 9... <clears throat> He closes out his idea of life and death and a discontented soul with the wanderer. Verse 9, the preacher brings up the plight of the wanderer. That's the soul that has gone prodigal. You find him there in verse 9. He says, better is the sight of the eyes. Better is right, what is right in front of you than the wandering of the appetite. You see that word appetite? That's the same word, nefesh. It's soul. Better is what you see here, what God has given you here, than your soul wandering out there. This is the prodigal in the far country that has left his father's provision that he had and would be his and gone out to profligate living. And he's living out there somewhere. And, and now he's, he's in the pigsty and he's eating the pig food and calling it good. When everything he ever wanted was here. And that wandering, maybe that's you. That wandering, you'll never be satisfied. But it doesn't have to be like that. God in his goodness and love has seen our affliction and our trouble. He's seen the wandering and he's come to rescue God has seen the people he created in his image and that image so disfigured and separated and, and yet in love he comes. He sees the trouble that we are in. He sees that the trouble that we're in is unsolvable outside of Jesus who lived perfectly, died on the cross for those that are troubled with sin, which is everyone. God has given us Christ. God raised him from the dead and there sets him in front of us. And he says, come, come to Jesus, you wanderer. Come discontented, your soul. Come to Jesus. In a few moments before we have the Lord's Supper, I'd like for us to close praying together. And I want to ask you a couple of questions before I close the sermon out. 
So would you pray with me? The first question I'd like to ask is, do you need Christ to save you? Will you, even in your chair, your, your seat, or, or at home, will you just call out to God right now to save you based on what Jesus has done on the cross? That's the only way God saves people is through faith in what Jesus has done. Will you believe that? Or, or maybe yours is a, just, a discontent, you're just a discontented soul. You need help today. You need God to, to heal you, to remove the bitterness, the hurt, worry, anxieties. I mean, whatever word you want to use, you just need God. And now's a good time for you just to ask Him. So, Father, I pray for the people you've given me to serve and shepherd. Provide healing and hope restore joy, remove depression, take away worry, alleviate anxiety. We pray that you would erase bitterness. We pray that you would call people to yourself. Thank you, Lord, for hearing our prayers. In Jesus' name we ask. Amen.